so often we imagine, of course, as kids that our parents are more powerful than they are, and we can't believe, in a sense, in their powerlessness. We don't want to believe in their powerlessness right. because they're supposed to be the caregivers. And, and what does it mean if they're powerless to save us? Do you like books? I'm outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. Read it. Sometimes I'd write something. What are you writing? Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern, and this is Bookable. On today's show, what are we leaving our kids? So much of how we talk about inheritance is all about passing wealth from one generation to the next. But there's one thing all children will inherit, and that's the planet. We've only got one planet. Only one? Yeah, just one. It's the thing that literally sustains our lives, and yet we've had an entire generation or two who have essentially spent that inheritance and ignored the peril of doing so. Gone! It's all gone. We spent all of it. But it's our inheritance. Well, our guest today... Amanda, hi. She uses her new book to tackle this weighty topic with sharp, biting humor. So I'm mostly in my bedroom, um, which is mostly enclosed. There's this door... Time for an introduction. My name is Lydia Millett, and I'm the author of A Children's Bible. Lydia Millett. A Children's Bible is a novel about apocalyptic chaos that upends a summer vacation of kids and their absent and drunk parents. Or as Lydia puts it. It's a bunch of kids who are just repulsed by their parents living in a summer house, and things happen. Oh yeah, do things happen. So there's 12 children who've never met before and their parents who haven't seen each other in years. And they're spending a summer together in a lakeside mansion built by robber barons. So far, so good? Yes, very, very good. They are playing a game to distract themselves, to prevent themselves from being more bored than they have to be because their parents have taken away all their electronic devices and so they play this game where you want to be the the last one to be actually affiliated by the others with a given parent as your own so you want to be the last man standing whose parentage has not yet been discovered because the parents are so embarrassing that you don't you know you don't wish others to see the connection between them and you and the truth is they really are embarrassing. Like they're they're mortifying. And they're <laughs> more like they're more like children than they're actual children. Yeah, in some ways because they're they're self-indulgent and they're they're hedonistic and um they are not self-aware in many cases. So, yeah, although I mean can't those things be said of all of us, really, children and adults alike, to some degree. Yeah, to some degree, yes. But um, but I feel like they really wanted a summer without their kids, but they brought their kids anyway and just <laughs> acted like the kids weren't there. Although if they, if they had truly, truly wanted a summer without their kids, they should have left them with the devices, right? I mean, that's how you get True. alone time as a parent. You just let them play the video games. Although I didn't I didn't in the book really explain 
the genesis of that of that prohibition you know on the part of the parents i didn't really explain why they took away the devices although you assume it's so that they're not dependent on them they're not staring at at them all the time they're right. they're forging social bonds you know among themselves the kids but really they're they are such bad parents that in a way you could you could uh, rationally ask why why they would care whether the children interacted with each other um right Yes, true. But it's also, I found that the parents are so out of, like, they are so not interested in reality that um, they don't want to face reality. They're doing as much as they can not to deal with reality, that the phones Mm -hmm. themselves sort of represent reality. So they don't want to be told Mm. of anything that's going on. They don't want to be reminded of what's happening in the actual world. That's true. It, it it evolves into that uh, as the story goes on, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah and at first, they themselves are allowed to have their devices, of course, um, but the children aren't. But then later, the positions are sort of reversed. From a children's Bible, page 11. We were strict with the parents. Punitive measures were taken. Thievery, mockery, contamination of food and drink. They didn't notice, and we believed the punishments fit the crimes, although the worst of those crimes was hard to pin down and therefore hard to punish correctly. The very quality of their being, the essence of their personalities. Reading the book, I was realizing that the children in the book, they deal with reality as it comes crashing down on them, and it does come crashing down on them, um, unlike their parents who live in this fantasy, or rather, more accurately, uh, type of Eden. Um, and the children, meanwhile, would rather face the truth. So I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about how those two generations deal with reality. Yeah, well, I think my generation, which I'm 51 now, my generation of parents has really abdicated their responsibility to be genuine parents, you know, to be, to be future ancestors, as the hippies like to say. Um, we have uh, sort of thought of parenting, and I'm talking about people of a certain demographic, which is the demographic of these parents in the book, uh, that is to say a sort of liberal or progressive um, middle class, upper middle class, or wealthy, however you care to define those things, um, sort of arty or intellectual cultural, cultural producers, sort of, sort of group of people that are mm-hmm. fairly urban and fairly, fairly educated and sophisticated, but they, um, they practice this sort of not denialism of climate science, like, like Trump and um, Republican senators or whatever, but a denialism of sort of just the urgency of real life and the and the and the imminence of of transformation and and the sort of the the way in which chaos looms and complacency is um, is what they always default to. Um, but I think that younger people now, uh, mm-hmm. I think that people who are in their teens, and I observe it, it's fairly clear in social media, but also just in the 
in the media media and in the world um, that people in their, not all people, but many, many more people in their teens and 20s and 30s are actively engaged with the problem mm-hmm. of the future. And it's not uncool to talk about climate change or the extinction crisis the way it used to be for us. It was it was seen almost as um, uh, tedious and whiny to bring up these existential life support crises that actually hung over us. Now, it's not that way for younger people. But I would say, up, you know, up through people in their 30s, um, there's real agitation and um, and fear and anger around these these crises and um, and it's palpable and it's it's real like it's an anger that you really can observe mm-hmm. and if you go especially to like extinction rebellion meetings or if like me you work in uh, in conservation on these things you really do see it uh, and I'm just so overjoyed that the rage that we should have felt decades ago is finally surfacing. Yeah. I mean, it's great. It's very late, but it's, it's late. Great that it's it's late. Yeah. Not late for them, of course, not late for no. like people who are 15, but like, but for us, yeah, it's been so long coming that uh, it's, it's a relief, really. From a children's Bible, page 27. At that time in my personal life, I was coming to grips with the end of the world. The familiar world, anyway. Many of us were. Scientists said it was ending now. Philosophers said it had always been ending. A decade ago, or maybe a little more, this book would have been called Dystopian. But it lands in the world at a time when it's actually current. Do you have any feelings about this book being labeled environmental fiction and at all? Well, you know, I've never, I've just never liked the word environment or environmental. It sounds so wonky and it's so, it's so bloodless, you know, really we're talking about life support, life support. That's what we're talking about. And even that Mm -hmm. is sort of clinical sounding, isn't it? Like a series of machines hooked up to to a moribund patient or something like that. But really, we're talking about that which sustains our lives and, and upon which we're entirely dependent. And, um, and that's what we mean when we talk about the environment, really. And so uh, still, I don't like really the ring of environmental fiction. <laughs> I don't like mm-hmm. the ring of it, you know? like I think of myself as writing general literary fiction and I think that these are general matters. These subjects are general, of general interest. You know, <laughs> certainly um, should be compelling to any of us who care to continue to live. And I think that is a majority of us, really, at any given time, uh, who could, you know, who prefer to continue to live and who wish also <laughs> any children they have to, for example, continue to live. So I think it should be referred to as more general fiction. I do... You know, I do also, um, and of course there are exceptions to this, but uh, I sometimes associate environmental fiction with humorless, um, mm. with humorless fiction, which is is partly unfair because it's it's simply not always the case. But there's kind of a there's kind of a certain you know timber of that, right, or a certain um, 
uh, stigma almost of humorlessness, even associated with the movement in general. And that too is unfair actually, and somewhat manufactured, but that's another conversation. But I, so I, and I, it is so important to me that, um, and as a reader also, again, always that things contain the comic and um, even sometimes a certain brutal savagery of humor I, I like to see. <laughs> so, um, and, it, and so to say environmental fiction or something uh, of work that also wishes to have a comedic side, I think is, I don't know, it feels a bit constraining. It's just an embarrassment of marketing, I think, you know. It's, <laughs> yes. It's just yeah. something they came yeah. up with in a meeting. Yeah. But I, I came across a term um, that I, I, I almost, I, like, just left the world. It, it, Cli-fi? Cli-fi, Cli-fi. Yeah, no, it's awful. It's terrible. Um, but we I were... Mean, I, I sort of, I don't like the term sci-fi for science fiction even you know uh, although i'm not saying i've never used it i'm i'm sure that i have fallen into using that you know sci-fi or sci-fi fantasy or i'm sure i've said that but at the same time i don't i don't particularly like that kind of i don't know shortening or the, that kind of short yeah. in general but there is really there is climate fiction now um that does exist as a thing and i don't know i mean i there should also be extinction fiction. <laughs> we should, you know, for the yeah. first time, we're we're giving more attention to climate over the past three years because because you know because of obvious reasons having to do with the nihilism at the at the top of the country. But um, but we, I think, are also beginning to look more than we have in the past at extinction and, and what, what, how enormous and vast that, that tragedy is as well. And so I'm happy that, I'm happy that we're giving these things more time on the airwaves and more time on the screen and that finally they seem to be getting more of their due. And I hope it's a linear progress. You know, mm-hmm. I hope it's not just a, I hope it's not just a blip. for a short break. When we come back, Lydia shows us her inner child. Stick around. Welcome back to Bookable. I'm Amanda Stern, here with Lydia Millet, author of A Children's Bible. Lydia has a particular gift for writing children, and it's not an accident. There are a lot of ways she still identifies with kids. I do have um, this sort of need for instant gratification that many children have and babies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, think mm-hmm. that I think I have that. Um, also, I, I do have a kind of honesty... I think, uh, on a personal level, not, not a perfect honesty by any means. And I'm not saying this to brag, but the kind of honesty that can embarrass people sometimes and, and get you in hot water and where you don't, you don't think before you speak and something comes out, you know, blurted. <laughs> I mean, right. I, I don't, I don't think that children have um, a monopoly on that at all in general, but I do think they're more prone to be 
you know, uh, unaware of the effects of some of their language, at least little children. Teens probably are, are actually uh, peculiar, peculiarly sensitive, even without full access to empathy, because of sort of social anxiety and stuff, probably more sensitive to, to the way um, blunt language can land. Uh, I would guess, but I mean, of course, that's like I'm making a generalization there. But um, also, I, you know, I love animals now the way I did as a child, and what I'm interested in doing with fiction really has more to do with exploring the otherness of animals and and our love for them and the way and the way they play into our ideas of who we are. Mm-hmm. When I say animal, I mean all the beasts, and I also just mean anything green, anything that lives. You know, mm-hmm. we've turned away from all of that, and uh, it's not, it's, it's harming us profoundly, and it's actually robbing us of our life support. So, <laughs> I think it's of uh, paramount importance this way. We've all turned away from the other creatures because people are are partly all these other creatures that we've co-evolved with since forever, right? And we, we even our language is saturated with them. We don't have metaphor without animals. We, we, we invoke their names all the time and don't even yeah. realize that, you know, everything about us is built on our situation with these other, these others that we, that we now either ignore or exploit or traffic to our own, you know, um, to our own unfortunate yeah, peril, I guess. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, we're sitting here in the middle of a pandemic that was caused by, uh, for, first of all, caused by the exploitation of wildlife, like right. pangolins and civets and uh, bats, and then, of course, exacerbated by, by poor management, you know, on a national level. But first of all, mm-hmm. it was, was brought to us by our exploitation of wildlife and... Um, so I think we have really direct evidence right now in our faces um, for for how you know how profound our connection is to everything and how delicate it is actually. From a children's Bible, page fifteen. My own parents were mother scholar, father artist. My mother taught feminist theory, and my father sculpted enormous, busty women, lips, breasts, and private parts garishly painted, often with scenes of war-torn or famine-struck locations. The labia might be Mogadishu. He was quite successful. It's interesting. You do something with this novel that I just, like, I, I... my actual question is in all caps, um, the second half. So I wrote, um, it's such a heavy topic, and yet you brought such lyricism and humor to the page. And then in all caps, I wrote, how did you do that? I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's it's like really hysterically funny. You know, yeah, the, I'm really happy the, labia, the labia is Mogadishu. I mean, it's hysterical. <laughs> It's, it's like truly some of the funniest writing I've I've read in a really long time, and it's the such a heavy topic, but it's just buoyant, and I I just don't know how you did that. I really don't, and maybe well, you don't you either. Made me, you made me very happy saying that. I think it's just about 
isn't it just about the characters and how you and how you make them be in moments of dialogue i mean it's not all about dialogue of course and that's often not the funniest part right it's not dialogue but the dialogue and the and the those kids and their voices allow you to be immediate even when the background or even the foreground is something looming and dreadful. I think as long as you have people, you'll always have humor. Yeah, but I do think that a lot of it... In the real world, anyway, right? In the real world. Not the story in fiction. But, yeah. Um, Sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to say that it's, to me, I could tell you were having so much fun. Yeah. You know, it felt like writing this book was a great deal of fun. That is... Uh, was my, it? Yes, it was. Of course it was. That is how I approach each book. <laughs> no, I always yeah, want Yeah, that's to, great. You know, I, uh, but I do, I want to, um, I want to evoke a full range of emotions in myself. So, but I, but I, but humor, like I have to laugh sometimes. I have to be able to make myself laugh because, you know, uh, if you, if you don't laugh yourself, I feel few others will laugh right (laughs) and but also just that it's so it's so pleasurable it's so it's so pleasurable and also but i but if i i also have to feel like tears come to my eyes at a certain point or i've not done my job lydia millet author of a children's bible it's published by W.W. Norton & Company and is available now. Bookable is a production of Loud Tree Media. I'm your host, Amanda Stern. Five feet tall. You know, kid height. We're produced by me, Bo Friedlander, and Andrew Dunn, who also mixed and sound designed the show. Bo is Loud Tree's editor-in-chief. Find us on the web at bookablepod.com. And please subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. That's one of the best ways for other listeners to find Bookable. One big takeaway from this interview, when it comes to categorizing Lydia's novel, it's best to double check your phrasing before quoting it to her. When you said that, I thought you were like talking about porn for a second. I was no, like, wow, but that's what I, I, that, it said, really, that's what I was like, it sounds like porn. Cli-fi. Yeah, it was cli-fi. But then cli-fi, I kept yeah. thinking, cli-lit, cli-lit. Um, yeah, no, it's awful. It's terrible. This is Bookable.